Hello and welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Boddy. And this week we're doing another CAN. So CAN, what does CAN stand for again? Critical Appraisal Nugget. Ah, so those little small little things, those small little nuggets of information that will help you get through your exams, help you read papers and help you be a better person at critical appraisal. If you're coming up to an exam, this may be particularly useful, particularly things like FR Chem, that lovely exam. Oh, isn't that such a fantastic exam? I enjoyed it remarkably well. In retrospect, yeah, so it's like all exams, isn't it? They're quite mild and quite okay once you pass them. But for all those people coming up to them, you know, it's pretty hard going into these things. So we're here to help you and help you understand papers and to get you through your tests. So intention to treat, ITT, what's all that about? Well, this is the principle that we use when we're analysing data, particularly from a randomised controlled trial. And we all know, I'm sure, that that analysing data according to the intention to treat principle is a good thing to do. Yeah, so we could think of some examples of a trial maybe where we were looking at uh, anticoagulants, so novel anticoagulants, NOACs, for patients who come in with pulmonary embolism. And we could have a new NOAC and we could compare that against the old one, so something like warfarin. And we could track the patients over a period of time and look at a principal outcome measure, what should we say, death. And compare death rates between those two groups, because that will be important. And in this trial, let's say we're comparing this novel oral anticoagulant, let's call it Carlioxaban. This is a really good name. Yeah, I think so too. And they've compared this with warfarin. And the headline result is that in the standard care group, we've got warfarin. The incidence of death was a remarkable 15%. Which is pretty high. It seemed a bit high. And in the Carlioxaban group, the incidence of death was only 5% which is a absolute risk reduction of 10% and a number needed to treat of 10. So that's pretty good values. Absolutely. Carly Pharmaceuticals PLC is going to do pretty well on this one. But there's a problem. Well, you see, everyone in the warfarin group did get the warfarin. But in the Carlioxaban group, only 50% of the patients actually got Carlioxaban. So that's okay. If we weren't doing intention to treat, then that's how we would analyse it, isn't it? We would analyse them on the basis of what people got rather than what our intention was to do. But you're trying to tell me, or I think you're going to try and tell me, that it's better to do it from an intention perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So in this trial, Carly Pharmaceuticals have unfortunately been a little bit underhand. And they have excluded the patients who dropped out from the study and didn't take their Carlioxaban. They didn't analyse those patients. They only analysed the ones who completed their course of treatment with Carlioxaban. And unfortunately, when we look at the 50% of patients who didn't take their Carlioxaban, it was because they had horrendous side effects. Their hair fell out, their skin went green. Which is not good, and has a major problem with compliance, I imagine. So in those patients who managed to comply and tolerate the hair loss and green skin, Carlioxaban was wonderful at preventing death. So in a similar situation, you can have people that swap between groups as well, can't you? So could, people could go into one arm of the trial, be intolerant, and move into the other one. And that can go in both directions. And again, why would that not be a good way of analysing it on the basis of what people have received rather than what you wanted them to receive? Well, there may be systematic differences between those patients, and it adds in extra confounding factors. Uh, So actually what we really want to do is analyse patients according to what we intended to be giving them in the first place. So if we include everyone in that initial analysis, according to the group that they were randomised, regardless of of whether they took the treatment, whether they crossed over, whether they received the opposite treatment, 
then we'll get a much more real-world estimation of what the treatment effect is. And it tends to be more conservative, and we like that in trials, conservative estimates of how good the treatment is. Intention to treat offers us that. It's a robust way of doing things. It tells us what's likely to happen if we implemented this new treatment in practice. So I like to think of it about how the trial would be used. So you do a trial, you get some results, and then you're a clinician three months after it's been published and you're in your department, you're making a decision about the NOAC treatment or the standard warfarin. You don't know at the point when you're making the decision whether they're going to be compliant, whether they're going to be um, able to take the drug, whether or not they're going to be allergic or intolerant or any way. You don't know at the point when you're making the decision. So I like to think about the trial data being analysed to be the same as the mindset of the clinician who will be using the results of that trial in the future. And that's to me, is the key point with intention to treat. It turns what the trial is achieving into the pragmatic decision the clinician is going to make down the line. Evaluating how good is this treatment going to be if I make a decision that this patient should have that treatment right now? At that particular time. Yeah, not three months later, if the patient's managed to take it, how good is it? So, intention to treat, absolutely, we want to see that in our randomised controlled trials. But we can't get away from the fact that sometimes we've got data which tells us what actually does happen when people do or don't take the trial. So should we always ignore that? Sometimes it's also good to look at what happens when patients actually fully complied with the protocol. It's quite interesting to see. Maybe there were other interesting reasons why patients dropped out, not just because there were horrible side effects. And in those circumstances, there might be something we can do about that. So if we find no effect in our intention to treat analysis, perhaps if we'd have just changed something about making it easier for clinicians to behave in a certain way, changing paradigms, actually this has still got promises of treatment. So we might do a per-protocol analysis as well, where we analyse patients according to what they actually took and see if that changes our overall findings. And you know there's another reason why we might do a per-protocol analysis. Sometimes we're looking to see whether one treatment is superior to another, a superiority trial, which we'll cover at another stage. Other times, we're looking to see whether the treatment is no worse than the other, non-inferiority trials. And in those circumstances, actually, a per-protocol analysis is actually a bit more conservative than the intention to treat. Because let's say we did a non-inferiority trial to look at the safety of a rule-out algorithm, for PE, let's say. Mm -hmm. And um, we implement this rule-out algorithm, and in the treatment arm... No one actually followed it. They all did standard care. And in this trial, only 10% of the patients in the treatment arm were actually treated with this novel algorithm. The trial will find no difference using an intention to treat protocol because most of the patients in the treatment arm actually got treated in exactly the same way as the patients in the standard care arm. But the per-protocol analysis is, will tell us what happened when we actually followed this early rule-out protocol. And potentially, those are the patients where safety might have been compromised because we might have sent the patients home earlier, they're more subject to adverse events. And only by analysing them will we get a true estimate of what the safety of that treatment is like when we use it in practice. So in an non-inferiority trial, we'd actually quite like to see a per-protocol analysis. So it can get pretty complicated. I think to round this one off, 
the bottom line is that when you're doing randomised controlled trials, it's the point of randomization which is going to subsequently reflect the clinical decision if you were to use the results of that trial. So intention to treat makes sense from that perspective. And it's the right thing to do. If you're appraising a paper and you want to check whether they actually applied the intention to treat principle, have a look at the study flow diagram, the participant flow diagram. See how many patients were allocated to each treatment arm and see if that matches up with the final number of patients in the analysis. In the intention to treat protocol, it should. And whilst intention to treat is fantastic, there are a few circumstances where you would do a per-protocol analysis to you to actually look at what the patient's really received. And that's a little bit more exploratory and perhaps is going to be more informative to future studies rather than the one that you're actually looking at. But it doesn't mean that you should throw away that data. And there are certain circumstances where it's particularly important to look at the per-protocol analysis, for example, in a non-inferiority trial. So, ITT, it's good. It's very good. And we will no doubt talk about this again in the future when we talk about more aspects of randomization and more cans to come. I really hope you carry on enjoying the podcast. We'll have more cans to come, more on clinical topics and more on metacognition and emergency medicine on the St. Emelins podcast. Rick, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm now following the intention to treat some patients principle. That is a very good principle. See you soon. Take care.